Please take a seat. It's very nice to see you all. My name is Ed. For those of you who don't know me, I'm married to Hannah, who's been leading the service. Um, and if, it, you're, if it's your first time here, you're um, visiting us, and particularly if you're supporting uh, Christina and Benjamin, it's very good to have you with us. Um, very warm welcome to you. Um, and maybe we could just uh, have a round of applause again, a kind of congratulatory round of applause to these two um, children. Uh, baptism, as Hannah said, is such a beautiful uh, kind of expression of life, of God's love, of the wonder of his family, and it's always a privilege uh, to be part of it. And I think it tends to be at these sort of significant moments in life, things like baptism or maybe things like getting married or perhaps losing a loved one or changing a career or starting a career, it's often at these times that we can begin to ask some bigger questions about life. Um, what are we doing here? What are we for? Those sorts of things. Um, what are we, particularly with the onset of children, bringing these fragile, innocent, small little lives into? What sort of world will they enjoy? So if you don't mind, I'm going to drone on for a little bit, and I'm going to ask some of these questions. Um, particularly, what in life are you going to put your faith in? What are we going to believe in? Because we've all got to believe in something. The alternative, some sort of fatalistic nihilism, where we don't really believe in anything at all, doesn't actually end up being particularly easy to live out or particularly helpful to an enjoyment in life. Take it from me. I tried. It didn't go well. It turns out it's very tiring not believing in anything at all. I had to lie down a lot. It's actually exhausting not caring about life. And besides, we as a species, we do seem to keep reproducing, don't we? And that tends to suggest, at least on a corporate level, that we believe there is something worth bringing new life into, that there is something meaningful to this life that we live. So, what are we going to believe in? We recently got a puppy. I'm not sure I would recommend getting a puppy, but we've got one. He's called Ziggy. He's beautiful, he's adorable, we love him very much. We wanted a golden doodle, because we're a terrible, terrible cliché. And the breeder we found, it turns out wasn't a reputable breeder, but they did charge reputable breeder prices. And we were shown this picture of a doodle, a glorious red-haired, furry little doodle, currently living out his two-week-old life in South Carolina. And we thought, we're sold. I love that puppy. That's the puppy we want. Please, will you send us that puppy? The disreputable breeder then sent us a dog. <laughs> a few weeks later, Ziggy arrived at our door. And this is when things got a little bit weird. Because Ziggy, it was fair to say, looked very, very unlike the picture of the Ziggy we had seen on the website of the breeder. In fact, the more we thought about it, Ziggy looked very unlike any golden doodle on any website ever. <laughs> Ziggy arrived, and he looked quite a lot like a spaniel. 
at best a red setter, but really he looked a lot like a spaniel. But we wanted a golden doodle. We wanted one with a furry beard, he didn't have that. We wanted one with curly, long, furry hair, he didn't have that. We wanted one with fur trousers, he did not have any of those. Instead, we had Ziggy, who looked a bit like a spaniel. But we told ourselves, because we wanted a doodle, it's okay. His hair will grow, his face shape will change, he will become the golden doodle we ordered. We took him to a vet. He told us in no uncertain terms, this would never, ever, ever happen. But you know, what do vets know? We took him to another vet, a better vet, a different vet, without any prompting at all. He said, this is not a golden doodle, it looks like a spaniel. Let me tell you, he is a golden doodle, I promise you, because that's what we wanted. The point is this, it's hard to admit when we've put our faith in the wrong things, isn't it? But it's okay. It's okay to make mistakes, we all do. I grew up in England in the 1980s, but I was fascinated this whole time growing up in England about this mythical, extraordinary place called America. It was this land of opportunity, and then for one glorious year, my dad did a sabbatical as a teacher in Massachusetts, and we spent 12 months living in the land of American promise, and we enjoyed all the things that England could never give us, like the real Disney World. And we went to the real Disney World. Now, in England, we don't have the real Disney World. Our version of Disney World is a thing called Butlins. It has no um, real connection to Disney World at all. Think of struggling actors wearing big red suit jackets, performing on makeshift stages with terrible lighting and tinsel and a glitter ball to backing tracks, and the whole of the audience pretending that they're enjoying themselves whilst batting off the horizontal rain that is sweeping across their faces. That is our version of Disney World. In fact, the more I think about Butlins, our version of Disney World, it's possibly the most unhappy place in the world. But my family in America, we had the real thing. Space Mountain and the Epcot Center. And we even drove around in a car that had air conditioning. Air conditioning! What magic was this? And there was, this car actually could accommodate more than three people. I'd never seen a car so big in my life. It accommodated four. It was amazing. Now, America has always been a wonderful country. And as a kid growing up, I thought, this is the best. And then from my perspective, as I grew up a little bit, I saw America and it looked like, oh yes, it has destroyed communism. This is the beginning of the brand new world. What an amazing place, led by the US of A. But what of this brave new world since? Undoubtedly, some of it has wonderfully materialized. For example, we now have kombucha. But lots of things haven't. We, America, we are in large part responsible for a global banking crisis. We now lead the developing world in type 2 diabetes, incarceration, obesity, gun violence, and childhood illiteracy. And at arguably the time when we've never more needed a savior, we killed off Iron Man. We killed him. 
Why did we do that? Now, please don't hear me as saying that I don't think America's great. I do think America's great. I really do. I'm just saying that like any other country in the world, it's ultimately just not great enough. Not great enough to carry the weight of our precious faith. We all need to believe in something bigger. And our institutions are similarly flawed. Trust in government and politicians is, is at an all-time low. Colleges are loading a lifetime of debt onto people with no real clear pathway out. And more people are leaving established religion than ever before. Now, I understand for those who've been brought up in Christian church, the process of deconstructing some of the more unhelpful negative teaching or more unhelpful negative experiences is a painful and difficult one. But for many, can I just say this, it is an absolute necessity. Because without it, we are effectively carrying on believing in something that isn't true and isn't necessarily doing us any good. It's a bit like believing that Ziggy is a doodle. He really isn't. He's a spaniel. It actually feels very freeing to say that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to me. It's like a whole weight has lifted off my shoulders. Ziggy is a spaniel. Just don't tell my children. So, deconstructionism, good. But the problem with deconstructionism is, by its very nature, what you're left with is a whole load of rubble. And you can't build your life on rubble. Some sort of reconstruction needs to take place of that more in a minute. But back to our question. What on earth are we going to believe in? Because we've got to believe in something. Ourselves, perhaps. The goodness of humanity. Human potential is extraordinary. I was recently given a book on leadership by my wife, biggest fan, greatest supporter. I'm also hers. But she gave me this book on leadership. What it was was a thinly veiled criticism of my leadership. But nevertheless, it was a justified criticism of my leadership. And she gave this book, and it's called uh, Dare to Lead by Brenny Brown. And it's a very good book. I like it a lot. It's much more uplifting than what it appears to be about, which is of, uh, basically that when we are able to, in a nutshell, admit our shame, when we're able, in a nutshell, to show our vulnerability to other people, we are able to receive the empathy, the love and affection, not just from other people, but also from ourselves, that actually destroys that shame, that sense of not being actually good enough. And there are lots of stories in the book of quite how powerful and restorative and indeed conducive to highly effective leadership that the love and the kindness received from other people and from ourselves can actually be when we are able to be vulnerable. It's a beautiful actual description of the goodness of us, people, humanity, what we can actually do. And let me say this. There is not one person in this room that could not benefit exponentially from having more people say to them, I see you. I know who you are. I love you. I am with you in whatever you are going through. 
and there is not one person in this room who could not exponentially benefit from saying and believing all those things about ourselves too. Brené Brown is exactly right. Unconditional love is the antidote to shame, to any belief that you are not good enough. And I think deep down we all know that and we all sense it. But the pr problem is, human love, whether directed to ourselves or to other people, will always be a finite commodity. It is just not the case that there is more than enough love to go around. There is a whole lot of love, but there's not more than enough. In fact, there isn't enough. Even Burt Bacharach, Burt Bacharach, he knew this back in 1965, the reference for the over 60s. <laughs> what he said is what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Entirely true. But then he went on to say, it's the one thing that there just isn't enough of, because there isn't. Spend any length of time with any of us, and all of us will prove this point to ourselves. We will have used up all our love. We'll be selfish, we'll be self-related, we'll be self-obsessed, we'll be self-destructive, or we'll be all of the above. And if you're in any doubt, let me give you this little challenge. Let's just try to be completely self-giving of love for, let's just say, the rest of today. Just one day. Let's just do it. I predict you won't make it past lunch. In fact, some of you are already having unloving thoughts towards me and what I'm saying right now. You have failed. Congratulations. So what are we going to believe in? Now, it's often when people see um, the, uh, the futility or they realize that these earthly things aren't actually worthy of us putting our whole faith in, that they turn to something beyond themselves, be that religion or Eastern philosophy or some sort of spirituality. Is this just an escape from life? Well, yes and no. Yes, it's an escape from the reality if what we are putting our trust in is not actually real. And no, it's not, a, not an escape if what we are putting our faith in, however extraordinary, is actually completely real. I dismissed religion growing up after these two contrasting experiences I'd had of Christianity growing up, and apologies if you've heard me say this before. These two contrasting experiences, the first of which was the school chapel that I was sent to um, as part of my boarding school education. I went to a British boys' boarding school. It's a bit like Hogwarts, but with fewer owls. We wore capes. Don't worry about those. <laughs> and part of it was um, chanting in a school chapel to each other where no one wanted to be there 
and it was very tedious, and it was clear that no one really believed in anything. But we had to go because it was obligatory. And I went to this every year for five years, and then I went and thought, I'm going to talk to the priest about this because I don't know why we're doing this. It's really boring, and what are we, why are we doing it? I went to speak to the priest, and it was wonderfully unreassuring to hear him go, well, I don't really know why we're doing it either. And it's clear that he didn't believe in anything. That was number one. Number two contrasting experience was two evangelical Christian holiday camps I was sent on by my parents. Now, the people who ran these really believed in something. There was no doubt they knew what they stood for. But this was a sort of strange, heady um, combination of kind of rock climbing and guilt. You know, <laughs> outdoor pursuits in the morning, being told just how much God does not like you in the afternoon. And I left these two experiences and my childhood going, I don't really like Christians. I don't like the God who they seem to be interested in. Or either it's boring and totally irrelevant, or it's pretty judgmental and angry. And then I went away to university, and I did a degree in philosophy and religious studies, which gave me everything that I thought I wanted in order to be able to go, well, clearly it's all just made up and wrong. But, then I found myself in a proper church. I won't go into the details of how I got there, but I did get there. And being in this proper church, I found the experience extraordinary. It wasn't really the church. The people were very nice. The music was good. The preacher was good. But it was something beyond that. What I would now say is actually an experience of the living God. I wasn't expecting an experience of the living God. In fact, the reason I went to church was to disprove the whole thing once and for all. I had a tick list of religions and philosophies, and I was starting at Christianity, and I was going to work my way through to prove that none of it was real. But I had this strange experience of God. And what I realized pretty early on in going to this church was that despite my wonderful um, intellectual arrogance, I hadn't actually ever considered the evidence for Jesus actually being who he said he was, and particularly for him rising from the dead. I, though, had a philosophy degree, and I knew about Sartre and Heidegger, and I could quote that, and I also knew about biblical criticism, and I knew about source criticism and redactionism, and that was going to help me, but I'd never, ever thought about the historical basis for Jesus rising from the dead. And then when someone presented it with me, uh, to me, I thought, oh my goodness, I don't know what I think about this. This seems quite convincing. It can't be convincing, surely. And I looked more and more into it, and I realized, no, the best explanation for this whole thing is that he really did rise from the dead. That can't be true, and I definitely don't want it to be true, but it looks like, ah, it's true. Very annoying. In fact, if you would like to quickly become a Christian, if you're not, I suggest looking into the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You might find, against your will, that actually, oh, it might be true. But on top of the intellectual arguments, I experienced this spiritual dimension to life, which I had no explanation for, and I found both compelling and quite extraordinary. Quite frankly, it scared the bejesus out of me, but it felt amazing. Love and freedom and forgiveness and worth. You see, the heart of Christianity 
is not about putting your faith in doctrines or beliefs. And the heart of Christianity is not about putting your faith in moral codes or ways of behaving. The heart of Christianity is actually about putting your faith in reconnection. So what are we going to believe in? I want to try and illustrate that final point from an extremely famous passage in the Bible, which no doubt you will be somewhat familiar with. This is part of the story of creation from Genesis 2. Let me read it to you. I'm going to skip across um, a few things just to get the point across. Genesis 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skipping to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Skipping to 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Very famous passage, not just in the Bible, but in the whole of human literature. And let me just say quickly as an aside that I don't believe that the Genesis account of creation is a historical document. Now, if you want to, that's absolutely fine. That's absolutely fine. I don't actually think it makes any difference, but I don't believe it's a historical document. And the reason I don't believe it's a historical document is not because I believe in some sort of Big Bang, although I do. It's not because I believe in dinosaurs or evolution, although I do. The reason I don't believe that it's a historical document is because I don't think it was written as a piece of history and therefore it was never intended to be read as a piece of history. Now, there are parts of the Bible that are definitely read as, uh, written as pieces of history and are supposed to be read as pieces of history, like quite a lot of the rest of Genesis, like, most importantly, the Gospels about Jesus. Here, this is, these are historical documents. Take them as that. But I don't believe that about Genesis. And that does not mean, though, that it is not a divine um, piece of literature given to us, written by human hands, but telling us very important, divine, supernatural, um, elemental, uh, universal truths about life. But it is not about how life began, it is about why life began. So, back to the point. The story of Adam and Eve and particularly what is known as the fall, has traditionally been understood as this sort of foundational, catastrophic moment of human disobedience. God told them to do one thing, they did the opposite, they disobeyed. And this traditional understanding has colored a lot of what people have received as Christianity and the Christian life, which is ultimately about obedience. Essentially, do not be like Adam and Eve who disobeyed. Obey God because that is what he wants. I want to say this. To reduce Adam and Eve's sin to one purely of disobedience is actually really to miss the whole thrust of the biblical narrative and, in fact, our Christian faith. 
fundamentally, the problem for Adam and Eve is not disobedience. The problem for Adam and Eve is independence, and it's something we all share with them. Now, the key to understanding this is to see exactly what Adam and Eve were before the fall. In Genesis 1, they are described as being made in God's image. But the word for image, icon, actually doesn't just convey a likeness. They aren't just reflections of God. It actually means something much more than that. It's, It's like they are idols, like they are actually icons of God. Created, yes but sharing in his divinity, like really little gods. His image bearers, his vice regents on earth, being like him and doing things like him, most importantly, creating out of chaos, being his co-creators. And similarly, the word used in the reading I just read, verse 24, for naked, has a whole depth of meaning that often we miss. Adam and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. The word for naked there is Aram, and it means much more than just not wearing any clothes. It means actually a guileless innocence of knowledge. It means being fully in possession of godly wisdom, of knowing everything that we need to know, but without any edge or craftiness or deceit or deception. It is being pure in full godlike knowledge of everything. And they felt no shame because they felt exactly what they were supposed to be, which was who they were as God's icons, as his idols. Why is this important? Well, it's important Because as you'll remember, the fall occurs when Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, something God has told them not to do. But God has not told them not to do that because what he's after is obedience and he just wants good, well-behaved little children who do exactly what he's told them to. He tells them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they do not need to. They already have it. They have, we had, what we were always supposed to have, which is everything we need connected to God. They have knowledge. They are like God. They have it in all its wondrous, unadulterated, God-connected purity. It is theirs by dint of them being created as his little vice-regents, as his little gods. So their sin is not simply disobedience. Rather, it is grasping at something that is already theirs. It is grasping at something and wanting for something independent of God. It is effectively saying, no God, I just want it for myself. The warning that God gives them is that they will surely die. Now, they don't die a physical death, of course, but they do suffer a death, a much more catastrophic one. They suffer the death of their status and their identity. They lose their idol likeness. And the consequences for them are the consequences that are the same for us, that we all do it time after time. We have to hide ourselves from God and we experience shame. Shame. 
the experience of not being good enough. Shame, the experience of not being us enough. You were made to be an idol of the living God. Every single person who ever lived was. Having godly wisdom and purity. Being creative in creation, bringing order and life and beauty to it. We've all lost it. And so the heart of the Christian gospel is this. Jesus, the second Adam, as Paul describes him, the true human, the God from outer space who nevertheless becomes one of us, takes on our flesh, walks amongst us, identifies with us. The reason he does this is because of reconnection, of reordering things, of reconstituting what life is always supposed to be like. What Jesus offers is reconnection. First and foremost, once and for all, the most important thing that we could ever experience, reconnection to God. And only he can do it, and only he has. So what are you going to believe in? What are we going to put our faith in? What sort of world do we want to bring Benjamin and Christina and every other small little fragile child into? To end, can I suggest that we let it be one where everyone knows themselves to be intimately loved by the unconditional, never-ending, endless love of God. Let it be one in which everyone knows themselves to be set free and forgiven and unencumbered by the past. Let it be one in which everyone knows they have a purpose and a meaning, that you actually have a job to do, that your life means something, and it is to bring light in darkness. It is to bring order out of chaos. It is to redeem the whole of this creation for God's glory. And let it be one where no one is so desperately, desperately, particularly in a city like this, trying to make a name for themselves, because they don't need to, because they already know exactly, exactly who they are. Because the God of the universe has told them and continues to tell them over and over again. This happens when we believe in the one thing that is worthy of our faith. The reconnection of ourselves to the one who created us to who we were supposed to be with, to the one we cannot live independently from and enjoy any actual meaning in life. That's what's on offer. And that's what God promises to all of us. So let us do it for the first time, for the millionth time. Let us make that choice to go, yes, God, yes, yes, I want to be part of your family. Amen. Amen. Good. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. But I want to just draw your attention to one thing. Um, on a seat nearby you, there is a little thing called um, a flyer, uh, which um, is uh, about Alpha. Now, Alpha is something that we run uh, three times a year. And let me just explain it to you. Because often, people can come uh, 
into church like this, maybe haven't been to church for a while or never before, and they have questions. Now, in my experience, we talk about the deep questions of life, usually at a dinner party or in a bar when we've had a couple of drinks and we're free-flowing, and then we talk about it and it's very exciting because we solve the meaning of life in that bar or at that dinner party, and it's amazing. And then we wake up the next morning, we can't quite remember how we solved it. We can't quite remember the conclusions that we drew. So Alpha is a way of giving people the opportunity to have those conversations. It is not categorically a Bible study. It is not a Sunday school. It's not about, oh, do you know the answer? Oh, well done. You do. Your theology is great. Oh, you know that verse. Well done. It is not that. It is a chance to ask any questions, state any opinion, um, uh, discuss any issue that you want to with like-minded people. The way it works is at Cavell Wine Bar, um, which is just down the road, we have a private room, uh, we buy some snacks, you arrive, you buy your drinks, and then there's a short 25-minute talk from me about a different subject each week. It runs for five weeks on Wednesdays, beginning on October the 2nd. You listen to the talk, it's about a different aspect of the Christian faith, and then we meet in small groups, and people discuss um, what they've heard and anything else they'd like amongst other people. Okay? So you can bring any thought you have into that context. Now, you'd think, wouldn't you, that the thing that people like the most is my talks. But amazingly, it's not that. They actually really enjoy the discussion. So I just want to flag it up, because if that's something you'd like to do, you're very welcome. You, we do, we're not interested in your money. We're not interested in signing you up to our cult. We do that later. Uh, it's just an open opportunity to talk about things. In my experience, people have been brought up in the church, if they've been brought up in the church. They come to a city like LA, they've um, become fully adult, and then they're going, wait a second, what was all that about? Do I believe any of it? Do I believe some of it? This is the context for you. Equally, if you are new to the church, we encourage everyone to do Alpha who has not done Alpha because it is a brilliant context in which to meet new people and actually find out what crazy British people like me and Hannah actually think. And you go, oh, wait a second, that's not Orthodox Christianity at all. I'm miles away. It is Orthodox Christianity. Anyway, but it's a great opportunity to discuss these things and to find out what you actually think. So it starts, as I said, on October the 2nd. You're welcome to come. You can come once and never come back. We're not going to come chasing you down. But in a minute, a um, uh, little clipboard will go around. Um, but let's stand, shall we? And I would love to pray for you. And then we're going to sing our final song.